back, everybody, with another episode of Drive Into the Baskets. My name is Mike, and this is a highly caffeinated Wednesday mailbag edition of the show. Wanted to do something to change the pace a little bit, and so here we are. This episode may be a little bit shorter than usual. This is a midday Wednesday, and I don't have quite as much time to record as I usually would. Of course, I've said in the past that an episode is going to be short, and then it ends up being an hour long, so we'll see how it goes. I want to thank all of you, whether on Discord or on Twitter, who submitted questions for the mailbag. And let's get rolling. So we're going to do these in no particular order, just kind of how I have them written down. Number one, why is Isaiah Livers suddenly so bad this season, and why is he still seeing minutes? So my theory on Isaiah Livers, and I believe this to be the case, is that his cumulative injuries have just caused him to lose a step. He had two pretty significant injuries in his final two seasons in the NCAA, one of which caused him to miss the vast majority of his, fresh, of his, uh, his rookie season in the NBA. And he's had uh, injuries since, of course, the most recent a grade three ankle sprain, which kept him out for the first segment of this season. Isaiah Livers was not a fast player in the first place. He was a markedly below average NBA athlete, not catastrophically so, but, and it was going to be fine if he was just shooting threes, attacking closeouts and playing decent defense. I mean, Isaiah was, was coming in and I think is, was overwhelmingly likely to have the ceiling of just a basic bench role player. And from all that I can see in the current season, he has very much lost a step, a step that he could not afford to lose. That's certainly manifesting itself on the defensive end, on which he is granted making a lot of mistakes, but also he just can't keep up. You run the guy around a screen, he's going to get there late, and he's just not going, it's just, it's going to unhinge the entire defense. He can't really rotate very well either. If you make him attack a closeout in any capacity, he's likely to get just jetted past. He's... It just all looks very bad, and from all I can see, he's now just too slow to play defense at the NBA level. This happens to players. If you lose a step in the NBA against the best competition in the world, that's going to have an amplified effect. And if you didn't have a step to lose, like Livers, who just, you know, as as I said, was not very athletic in the first place, then that's a big problem. As far as on offense, why is he shooting so badly all of a sudden? Also hard to say. Does injury have something to do with that? Who knows? Whatever the case, I'd say he has unambiguously been one of the worst players in the NBA this season. We're talking rotation players, guys who are actually consistently getting minutes. He's been awful on offense. He has been terrible on defense. He offers very, very little. Why is he still getting minutes? I think you can weigh that at the feet of a coach who has just done a persistently bad job at everything this season and has a penchant for making horrible decisions, including lose-lose decisions, as you have in the case of Isaiah Livers, in which event it's uh, do we you know, we're going to be, we don't have any particularly good options here, but are we going to give the minutes to a player who is better than Isaiah Livers and or a player who is young and could benefit from the experience? Or are we going to give the minutes to a guy who once again is unambiguously one of the worst players in the entire league, who is not going to help us do anything in the now and almost certainly has no future with the team? Because when you're Isaiah Livers and you're 25 years old and then you've reached this point, which can, you know, a point at which you're probably hobbled for good, and again, your ceiling was not particularly high in the first place. And once again, you're 25 years old. Why give this guy minutes? I would say in this particular instance, I mean, with Livers, I would give those minutes to Stanley Amude over Livers. I don't see that he could possibly be worse. So it's an absolute lose-lose situation with Livers. Why is he still getting minutes? Uh, frankly, because his coach is an idiot. I mean, I can't think of a single competent coach in the league, and we can just lump, oh, maybe Monty is actively making the wrong decisions because he's quiet quitting into the realm of incompetence because it's just doing a bad job either way. Uh, no 
self-respecting, competent coach would look at a player like Livers, who has been unambiguously horrendous, and say, I want this guy to start just because I'm throwing things up against the wall. And if he said that he just didn't really even think about it, well, that's the only context in which that would make sense because any coach who had put even the slightest bit of rational thought into the equation would never have made that decision, let alone just continue to doing that, continue doing that, excuse me, even though Livers has been an unambiguous, unambiguously bad in the starting lineup as well. And also he did it after a Celtics game in which Livers had been completely horrible. And after a Raptors, a game against the Raptors in which Knox had been pretty darn good, Livers had played for no reason in the final minutes and had been completely awful in the final minute that almost saw the Raptors come back and win the game. And then a game against the Rockets in which, you know, Knox wasn't good, but he was one of the only non-bad players in the lineup, and it just doesn't make any sense. So why is he still seeing minutes? Why is he starting, even though he's playing relatively small minutes? Uh, Because the coach is stupid. Uh, Or the coach is incompetent, whether it's deliberately or because he hit his head really, 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 really hard in the offseason, and we just didn't find out about it. Sorry about the the repetition. Like I said, I I had a little bit too much caffeine. Why is Wiseman seeing minutes? Uh, I think Wiseman is seeing minutes... Because uh, probably, I would say primarily at the behest of the front office, who made a completely silly and ill-advised and nonsensical trade for him when they already had three centers and another project center on the team. I think, or I continue to think, that this was primarily motivated by Troy Weaver. Who knows how much Arntellum is actually involved in management. Uh, I think it's been said, though, uh, I didn't listen to this firsthand. I think it was by James Edwards or, or Vince Goodwill on their podcast. Again, I haven't listened to this firsthand. That, uh, that Stefanski is now primarily just involved in the business side of things. But who knows? We just can't see behind the scenes. I've got to think that Troy Weaver probably is is making the majority of the decisions. Tom Gores said in his largely incoherent press conference that he has been involved as well, that he and, and Weaver have made these, these decisions in lockstep. Who knows? Whatever the case, my supposition, and sure this is just speculation, is that Weaver, who really liked Wiseman at the 2020 draft, and... Uh, According to the information we have, had Wiseman at number one on his draft board, and I'm really hoping that meant number one amongst players he thought might be available. Because my goodness, if this guy actually thought that drafting—I mean, if you're going to draft the center number one in a draft, I mean, he'd better be pretty darn special. And we didn't even have data on Wiseman because he only played three games in college. And my goodness, the thought that he might have drafted Wiseman over Anthony Edwards and Lamelo Ball—yikes! So in any event, I think he was just really high on Wiseman, and that Bay got traded primarily because Wiseman became available, and also because Weaver apparently thought that Isaiah Stewart was going to be a power forward. Bay continues to just be a, a good shooter this season and a bad defender. Nonetheless, the kind of player, you know, power forward size shooter the Pistons could really have used this season. So why is Wiseman getting minutes? I think the front office wants to see if they can get a return on investment. I think Monty Williams as well. Who knows? Throwing stuff up against the wall, just saying it can't get worse than Bagley. Uh, I don't know. That would be, I would say, arbitrary and highly inconsistent from a coach who certainly hasn't prioritized development, who has been perfectly willing to just pump minutes into bad players and neglect development, and and just say, well, guys like Livers and Hayes and whoever else are just going to get minutes while we've got Sasser and Ivy. Well, we're just going to bury Ivy for the first 20-something games of the season, and and Sasser, we're not going to bother playing him when other guys are playing really badly, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Monty Williams has been incredibly arbitrary. And, uh, and and immensely insincere in explaining his actions. So probably a combination of both. I, I understand that the front office wants to see what they might have in Wiseman on the other hand. And, and yes, this season is lost. On the other hand, this season has also become an outright humiliation in a way that I don't think is particularly good for the players. Certainly not good for the fans, but uh, that's a different story. 
and Bagley is bad. He is nowhere near as bad as Wiseman. I will say with Wiseman, he is so bad on a regular basis that him putting together a quarter or a half of basketball in which he just plays at a third string level is cause for note, is cause for yay, good job, James. His standard is that low. For the most part, he just makes incessant mistakes and his his decision decision making is far below NBA par. The average player, the average rotation player, the average solid rotation player, put it that way, which is the vast majority of rotation players in the league, may not be good, uh, you know, or somewhere between, you know, above average and below average. If we're talking about, well, we're just talking like role players, not starters. Though, of course, as we can see, some starters are very bad. But okay, you look at self-respecting teams or decent teams, uh, the average role player will range between above average and below average, but their their common state, their default state is NBA player. James Wiseman's default state is drastically below NBA caliber. So if you look at him play, if you look at any one of his games on any given night, his baseline is incredibly low. So when it comes to a team that just desperately needs wins, it would just be good for the soul, so to speak. And you're playing James Wiseman over Marvin Bagley, who is bad, but nowhere near as bad. I don't think that necessarily makes sense. What would I do to fix things this season? Uh, So I don't think there's any real easy way to fix things this season. I think that certain things just are as they are. But uh, what would I do? Number one, fire Troy Weaver. There's no reason for Troy Weaver to still be in his role anymore. He has proven himself drastically less than competent in putting together this unmitigated disaster of a roster. He should not be in charge of trying to make changes to improve it. For two reasons. Number one, again, he's proven himself to be less than competent, and I don't think should be trusted with that. Number two, backing a GM up against a wall and saying, well, we want immediate progress or you're fired is a recipe for him to do stupid things to save his own job. You do not want to create the conditions for that. Tom Gores did that with Dumars. He did that with Van Gundy. He should know by now that it's a terrible idea, but he's a terrible owner. I don't think he's really necessarily learned at all. He seems to have learned extremely little from more than 12 seasons of being the owner of the least successful franchise in the NBA. Monty Williams, I would fire as well. You already know how I feel about that. I Whether he is just quiet quitting or has just somehow transitioned from competence to absolutely disastrous, I, I don't, I mean, he's just been terrible. I mean, he's, he's been bad in every way, and I, I don't see him just substantively improving. If you want to improve this season, just find an interim coach. I don't, I've seen Casey raised. I don't really particularly want Dwayne Casey back, and I I would guess that he does not want to come back. My impression was that he wanted to be done with head coaching and was happy to move into into a role in the front office so he could spend more time with his family and just have. I mean, being a head coach absorbs your life. I mean, that is that is an absolutely life controlling. It it characterizes your life in during the regular season. You've got more time off in the off season, but it's you know you're on the road constantly. You're working constantly. You know, if you want to have a job in which you, I mean, he's going to get the money anyway. You know, if uh, like I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that that was the deal that he signs that extension. He was, he was going to get the money anyway. I think it was a it was a joint decision in which case he's still getting paid uh, his extension for for this year. I could be wrong about that, but just find a, an interim head coach of some. Just I mean, go for a competent assistant from another team. It doesn't have to be Kevin Ollie and. I think that could immediately improve the team to a degree, obviously to a limited degree, given how bad the roster is, but to a degree, to an important degree. And Monty Williams is doing damage in the now, and I think damage to the future as well. He has been a complete catastrophe. He has taken a bad roster and made it a great deal worse. Um, as far as fixing things elsewhere, I'll talk about trades a little bit later in the episode, but it's, you know, you can, obviously firing Troy Weaver is not going to improve things in the now. Firing Monty Williams and replacing him with somebody who's considerably more competent would. 
I don't think it's going to improve things to the point where the Pistons are actually going to be a good team, but I think you just have to get them out of here at this point. And yeah, I'll, I'll talk about trades a little bit a little bit later in the episode. Uh, there are roster moves you could make. For example, stop using Killian. Killian is terrible. The jig is up. He's drastically worse than an NBA player. He is not an NBA player. He is the poster child for getting chance after chance after chance, despite not deserving it at all. Enough. Stop. Sign like a, a half-decent third-string point guard of the G League. Make it Mac McClung for all I care. Killian can't, can do hardly anything right. He is legitimately horrible, and there is no reason for him to be playing anymore. There is no reason for him to be playing over Sasser. There is no reason for him to be playing, period. He sucks, and his, his chances should have long since run out. Instead, you've got a coach who's starting him and, and making the primary handler while well, he's on the floor. Like I said last in last week's episode, I mean, Keith Smith, he wrote an article about what he thinks the person should do, did not agree necessarily with all of it, though I thought most of it was solid. One of the things he said was, you know, if Monty Williams is not willing to stop playing the likes of killing, you've got to get rid of him. So he can't do it anymore. The thing is, I think the front office was perfectly fine with the way things went this season. They obviously didn't want somebody to get injured and want one of their point guards to get injured, but they arranged it such that Killian Hayes was inevitably going to be the third string point guard in the event of an injury to Cade or an injury to Monte Morris. They positioned themselves for this. I think that they didn't think it was necessarily a bad thing for Killian to get yet another chance after an absolutely obscenely bad last two seasons in which he I think demonstrates there's a mountain of evidence that he could not be a capable backup point guard or a capable NBA player at this point. Should never have been in line to receive those minutes. So better coach, better rotations, replace Killian, make what moves you can on the margin. Stop playing Isaiah Livers. I mean, there's a small things. And when it comes to trades, just that that's pretty circumstantial. What does the SAR need to do in order to be worth the pick? Oh, and I should note that, you know, fixing things that kind of depends upon your definition. And this, this is one such thing, like, what does Asar need to do in order to be worth the pick? I've mentioned this before. Just when it comes to Asar this season, like actually, you know, utilize and, and coach your young players, which Monty Williams does not do. He's pretty much forgotten about Asar, who admittedly has very little, very, very little to offer in terms of half-court offense. He's, he came in incredibly raw in that capacity. But you can do whatever you can to capitalize on what little he does have to offer and to try to mitigate the damage he does to the offense. And he does a lot of damage to the offense. Instead, his coach does nothing to coach him, and literally instead just makes him a max, maximizes Asar's damage to the offense. It's like, okay, you're just going to stand on the perimeter where, number one, you can't shoot, and defenses are happy when you shoot because you're terrible at it, like genuinely horrible at it. And so we're going to maximize you as a spacing liability also, because as long as you're on the perimeter, they can just easily sag off of you and go bother somebody else. And it just we're not going to make use of anything. We're just going to make you do maximum damage. Not ideal. Obviously, also, I mean, you look at situations like the game against the Jazz in which Isaiah Livers is garbage on offense and is not respected by defenses, is not significantly better than Asar as a shooter because, you know, he's a really bad shooter. You don't want either of them taking those shots. And is literally worse at everything else, like genuinely everything else. Worst defender, worst rebounder, can't vertically space the floor, not athletic, uh, worst passer, and so on and so forth. You should be trying to give run to whatever you can, you know, for a, for a player like Asar Thompson, for, you know, for any of the young players, especially given that the players playing ahead of them are terrible, like actually terrible and no future with this team. So what does Asar need to do in order to be worth the pick? Uh, shoot the ball. If Asar can be like a 37% three-point shooter, just a reliable guy when left open, then he could start for a championship team. Then you have a very, very strong defender, a strong rebounder, an elite NBA athlete uh, who can space the floor, who can finish plays from the perimeter. Uh, who's going to remain a strong cutter, who's going to remain a, a vertical spacer, who's going to remain strong in transition. That's all he needs to do. 
Now, where this pick went terribly wrong this season is that Asar Thompson was coming out of the uh, out of overtime elite as an extremely raw half court scorer. He was bad, straight bad as a half court scorer against overtime elite uh, overtime elite competition. He was terrible on driving layups, as like I think below fifty percent. He obviously had no in between game. He was a terrible shooter. You know, not notwithstanding that just brief Nova he went on in 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 the playoffs, which you can call the playoffs and in, in, in overtime elite anyway, which was absolutely the definition of a statistical blip. So he should not have been relied upon to be really playing any minutes at all. Instead, because the forward core was terrible and there were some injuries, he ended up in line for big minutes. And he should not have been relied upon, just period, for, for any of that. He should not have been in line for minutes for which he was not ready. And if you have to, you, you put him in the G League and let him get significant run there and work on his offense there. Instead, I mean, he's still with the NBA squad and just really not being used much at all and is not really getting any sort of good experience. And this is the worst of both worlds. So he's got to develop as a shooter. For whatever reason, I actually feel decent. I actually feel fairly confident. I think it's just largely intuition and knowledge of his work ethic. There, there have been certainly guys in the league who have had a very good work ethic and just cannot get their shot together, like Andre Roberson, for example. So it's not a given, but I actually feel like Asar will will report back to the team next season and be an improved shooter. If I would be surprised if he's a good one, and hopefully by year three he's he's really improved things as a shooter. He hope he get his handle he gets his handle together as well, and learns to finish through contact better. I mean his handle is pretty poor, and yeah his finishing through contact is pretty poor too, except in transition. But as long as he can shoot, then then you've got a strong pick there. What should the lineup in the system be with Kate out? Um, well. System that that's more of a complicated question. I'll, I'll go with the with just the lineup here, and again the system. Gee, where would I start there? Um, with the lineup, you want to give what I, the starting lineup I would run would be Ivy as the primary handler, Sasser for very very secondary handling because he's just not good at it and spacing, and also because you want to get him the minutes. Run Kevin Knox at small forward because, or excuse me, that would be Boyan at small forward. Um, he's, he's been playing mostly mostly small forward. I get uh, a little bit mixed up in my head because he would often play uh, power forward. In, uh, in Utah. So you have Boyan at whatever forward position. Play Kevin Knox at the other one. He's not good, but he's the best the Pistons have to offer at the position. And, uh, and then you have Jalen Duran. I would start playing Bagley over Wiseman at this point. I mean, it's just that the team needs more wins, and he could have been the difference just in terms of being bad rather than horrible uh, in, in some of the team's close losses. And then your bench sucks. Like I said, if you can replace Killian with anybody who might even be reasonably competent in the NBA, you do that. Uh, Put in a Mude in place of Livers. I mean, again, your bench is going to be pretty bad. I mean, you have Alec Burks, yeah, who's going to play, who's going to give you some decent bench minutes. He's really gotten out of his slump in terms of his shooting, though. Like many players in the roster, he's considerably worse on defense than he was last season. I mean, the defense this season is completely headless, you know, in a, in a way that last season's unambiguously bad defense was not. And Burks is one of these guys who's, you know, for whatever the reason, if that's it or not, he's stepped back from, from below average to bad. But, uh, you know, in that event, you've got insert point guard here, Burks, Amude, uh, I don't know, beyond that, I mean, Joe Harris, I guess, if you want to play a five-man bench lineup, but you really don't have to. That's just Monty Williams choosing to do that. And then Bagley, sure, your bench is going to suck, but, you know, that is what it is, and you can make it suck less by not running all bench lineups. But again, there are just certain things that are going to happen that are going to be bad that are going to keep happening as long as this coach is still the coach. And speaking of this coach still being the coach, I mean, you do have instances in which a front office will step in and say you have to do things differently. And I would not at all be surprised if Tom Gores had stepped in and, and said to, to Monty, you have to find, you have to stop doing this with Ivy. What, what Monty did with Ivy was, you know, well beyond the realm of complete and utter stupidity. And he continues to marginalize Ivy. 
for example, until Cade got injured, it's like, well, Jaden, sorry, you can't be on the court without Cade. I, wanna, I think I went over that a couple of times. Like, through, I think it was like seven games, however many games Ivy had been as a starter, he had spent something like 15 minutes, or I think it was 18 minutes without Cade. Not because Monty was trying to maximize the times two of them playing together, it's just because he was almost literally not willing to put Ivy on the floor without Cade, even if that meant having Killian as primary handler. So we can give those minutes to Killian and give that time to Killian instead of giving it to a prospect who could really use the reps, who's better at it, and who has a future with this team and is drastically more important than a fourth-year bust who almost certainly has no future with this team and maybe not in the NBA. Uh, Would the team have won some close games lately with Stewart in the lineup? Uh, That's a possibility. So you've all heard me say, you know, speak my opinion that that, I think, I don't want to call what I say objective, but I I think there's a very strong argument to be made to this effect that Stewart was, you know, the worst consistent big minute power starting power forward in the league. Uh, Would the Pistons have done better? It depends. I think that's against Toronto, if you have Stewart starting and, and, you know, have Knox, who actually was pretty darn good on both ends in that game. He was the the only player on the Pistons who could slow down Siakam, for example, and Stewart isn't really super suited to that. But even if he is, Knox did a better job and, and provided a great deal more on offense than Stewart does. So it's possible that the Pistons lose that game if Stewart is in the lineup. But you look further, like, in, in terms of close games lately that Stewart has missed, uh, the Utah game, I think that could have been fixed with just better coaching again at Monty Williams by nature and he is he has never been good at this in terms of late game management or if it's by design and just making terrible decisions uh, really blew that game he really blew the golden state game would Stewart being in have have mattered in the grand scheme of things there against golden state uh, that one i would say is possible now if you have isaiah livers getting minutes over kevin knox in that instance then the answer is unequivocally no kevin knox who really should have been on the floor down the stretch of that game. Monty Williams went with an absolutely ice-cold Boyan instead. And not only to do that, but he even called a play for Boyan Bogdanovich, a critical play late in the game. Boyan got stuffed, uh, didn't go to Cade, who was you know, his, his usual self in the late game. So might they have won the Golden State game if you just replaced Livers with Stewart? I'd say that's possible. Uh, the Utah game, if you just replaced Stewart with Livers, I'd say that's possible. Now the Boston game, if you just replaced... Stewart with Livers, excuse me, Livers with Stewart. Again, that's possible. So, you know, I, I would say it's a possibility. Again, it comes back to this being a coach who at times seems like he's doing everything he can to lose games. So just changing that one factor, you never know. Uh, but he would have helped. That said, helping, eh, it's just it's just so hard to say with Monty Williams is kind of like the chaotic factor here. Why have things turned out this way? Uh, and or why God is another question. Um, Terrible ownership, incompetent management, outrageously inept coaching. Those three things. I mean, and some player underperformance, but I think a lot more could have gone right. And and with this roster, which was just immensely poorly built, I could talk about that at length. And yeah, that, well, obviously I have talked about it at length. Just every sector of this roster was built poorly. And then you get the guy who is befuddlingly devolved from competence into arguably the worst coach in the league to, to make it even worse. And an owner who just makes all the wrong decisions. I mean, I just keep coming back to the way that Monty Williams was hired in the first place. And I did not want a flawed retread with fossilized flaws or just flaws that he was never going to improve upon and who was inevitably going to have like a a mediocre postseason ceiling. And I continue to maintain that Monty Williams would never have made the finals in 2021 if not for injuries, like key injuries to the Lakers in particular, but also the Jazz and the Clippers. I think that the Suns would have been out in the first round against 
the Lakers if Kawhi, excuse me, not Kawhi, if LeBron and an Anthony Davis had been healthy, in which events Monty Williams' postseason uh, accomplishments would have been less than that of Dwayne Casey at this point. And Dwayne Casey was a bad playoff coach. Well, bad playoff coach. Monty, I don't think is, is as bad a playoff coach as Casey, but uh, but shares some of his flaws, particularly in the realm of unimaginative and uh, bad at adjusting. Not quite as bad at those, but still bad. I just didn't. I, I didn't want another coach like that. I didn't want another retread who was flawed. But nonetheless, the way that Tom Gores went about getting Monty to join the team was would be hilarious. It's one of these things that would just be absolutely hilarious if the Pistons weren't the culprit and weren't suffering for it. Like same with James Wiseman. Watching him play would be funny at times, like because he's just laughably bad at times. If you weren't playing for the Pistons, and also if they hadn't pointlessly traded a, uh, or just very unwisely traded a, a viable rotation player for him. But it's like, hey, Tom, you should probably know this from all of your time as a successful, if certainly disreputable businessman. When you're faced with a potential hire who doesn't want to work for you and definitely doesn't need the money, just offering him greater and greater and greater bags of fully guaranteed money until he finally says, well, I think it'd be a little foolish for me to say no, is not the way to get yourself an invested employee. And you're also creating the absolutely perfect conditions for quiet quitting. Just saying. Uh, Weaver started promising and some good things have happened, like just being bad enough to get high draft picks, though obviously there's a very low standard because it's just that Tom Gores, up until uh, up until the start of this rebuild, up until the beginning of 2020, when he finally got the picture, was just not willing to let the Pistons rebuild. He also employed bad coaches, bad general managers. So some of it has been an improvement, though certainly the Pistons are at absolute rock bottom now. I mean, this is this is absolute rock bottom in terms of season performance. Um who knows if Tom has been involved in decisions that have made it so. I think Weaver has made plenty of bad ones. And it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of befuddling how, how he found his way to where things are right now. Uh, and then, I mean, you could say injuries, but it's just Monte Morris. I mean, if, if not having your backup point guard is enough to unhinge your entire team, then obviously you've got much, much, much bigger issues with the roster. Uh, how many games will Monte ultimately coach before he gets fired? Depends on the aforementioned very bad owner. I don't believe Tom Gores is likely to make a good decision here. I mean, what I feel is, is the right decision, which is just getting rid of this catastrophically bad coach who, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to comprehend that a coach may be actively trying to get himself fired. And what other explanation is there for a guy who was limited, but certainly competent, now becoming utterly incompetent? Whatever the case, is Tom Gores going to be willing to take the hit to his ego and, and to cut his losses? Uh, does he have the acuity to, to understand what the situation is in terms of Monty not being so good, as he's put it, but actually that he's been a disaster? That's a different story. In terms of the money, yeah, I mean, you obviously don't want to give up that amount of money, what was until Greg Popovich signed his extension, uh, the the biggest contract for a, an NBA head coach in, in the history of the league, despite that coach having a, a very not particularly impressive history. And it's now number three because Eric Spolstra signed a very highly deserved like I think eight-year, $120 million contract. Supposed to be best in the business right now, I think. I mean, that's, yeah, he's just amazing. Fantastic coach. So, I mean, you don't want to have to give up that money and pay for a replacement as well. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, you might find the Pistons actually losing more money in the long term if Monty remains the coach. I mean, this, you're going to make quite a bit more money if you actually have a good, if you actually have a good team, one that people like to watch and ideally one that can really improve and do well. And I think Monty Williams is going to put a perpetual ceiling in what the Pistons can do. And this season, I don't doubt, has been a financial hit. But, uh, you know, I, I can't really speak to that 
whatever the case, if you want a successful team, you'll do it. And yeah, $13 million is quite a bit of money. If you want to contextualize it against an owner who's worth, uh, I don't know, something in the realm of $10 billion. Also, it's basically the mid-level exception, the non-taxpayer mid-level exception. So it's a lot of money, but it's it's not bank-breaking. Of course, it's not my money, but it's not bank-breaking. And if you're Tom Gores and you're actually serious about wanting this to be a good team rather than just being obsessed with uh, with you know best, I think that would be the uh, the right decision to make because it is Tom Gores. You know, you'd really like to think that he has learned over the last 12 plus seasons of being the least of owning the least successful team in the entire NBA times and you know period in which he has constantly meddled. I think basically invariably to the, to the detriment of the team. I mean, if you'd like you'd like to think that he's learned, but it doesn't really seem so. So how many games will Monty ultimately coach if he's left to his own devices and doesn't take a buyout? And you know, if the, if the guy's trying to get himself fired, then why would he take a buyout? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that, that's just a different discussion. Um, I don't know. Three seasons, I'd say he would be given, maybe four, just because just because Tom Gores. I think he's just going to be very slow to to, uh, to to you know to make a decision that needs to be made. And who knows? Maybe Monty by that point will decide that he wants to coach again. But even so, like I saw Monty as, like, I thought it's like, okay, he was hired. I don't want him to be hired, but I think we're getting a genuinely good regular season coach here. And hopefully by the time it's time to move on from him, you know, by the time the Pistons are in the postseason, it's close to time to move on from him or it's close to the point at which he wants to stop coaching. Uh, the reality we have right now is that he's been very bad. Even if he reverts to his previous self, I mean, he's still going to put a ceiling on the Pistons in the postseason. That's the kind of comical aspect of things right now. Uh, all right, let's move on. Best Motor City G League players ranked. I don't really watch the Motor City crews, but so I would just have to guess. Basically, anybody who's on a two-way NBA contract is likely to be a great deal better than the rest of the players in the team. The G League is actually a strong league, relatively, you know, speaking relatively to other leagues in the world that are not the NBA. Guys who are on two-way contracts are a cut above the rest, even though they're still sub-NBA players. It's very, very hard to be an NBA player. You got to be one of the best of the best of the best. Uh, sorry, getting this memory of... Men in Black. He's like, we're here because we're the best of the best of the best, sir. Anyway, you got to be amazing to play in the NBA. So I would guess that that Amude and Roden and 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 Casaloni are best players there. Of course, Buddy Beheim exists as an exception to you've got to be a cut above the rest of the G League if you want to maintain a two-way contract. Why on earth was he on a two-way contract with this team for such a long time? Uh, that's anybody's guess. Of course, just oh, I'm Troy Weaver, and his father was the guy I used to work for as a plausible explanation because Buddy Baham had no NBA upside. Even if he turned out to be a really good shooter, I mean, the guy did not have the athleticism to survive on defense. It would have been very, very easy to cover on offense. This organization ultimately, I think, just doesn't really care all that much about its two-way contracts. Tends to just sign guys to them for whatever reason, you know, unless they're Saban Lee, who was a uh, second-round draft pick, but just tends to sign guys to two-way contracts for, you know, whatever reason and then just forget about them. And granted, you're not often going to get good roster players out of the G League. It's pretty rare to get a rotation player out of the G League, but it does happen. And even just ignoring any aspect of management, even neglecting any aspect of management, that's one aspect too many. Again, when you've got just horrendous underperformers like Isaiah Livers in the team, you really should be thinking about you know bringing up one or two of your G League guys to see if they could do better. But instead, we've got Money Williams, who's going to give the guy big minutes and start him anyway. And it's a Troy Weaver, who apparently uh, just doesn't want to get in the way or isn't allowed to get in the way. Why is the team not sending Asar and or Sasser to the G League? Again, I, I think that if Asar, it wouldn't be a bad thing to send Asar to the G League. I think he might get his best experience there. And how he's being used now makes no sense. Sasser, I mean, there's space for Sasser in the lineup right now. 
you just wipe, you know, if, even if Cade's here, you just wipe Killian out of it. There, problem solved. So it doesn't make sense to send him to G League. I don't think so. I don't think he's really going to be able to make substantive progress as a handler. If you're a fourth-year NCAA player and you still can't penetrate reliably and you are still a pretty mediocre passer, even by the standards of the NCAA, you are very, very unlikely to get much better, if at all, against drastically better competition. Again, especially you know if you're 23 years old. It can happen. It's unlikely. And in terms of everything else, I mean, we've seen him when he's able to make shots. He was a very strong shooter in the NCAA. He's just not making it three, his threes right now, though. Granted, he's not really being run on. Well, I mean, he's not making his open threes either way, though. He's also he's also not be, being run on like rational sets, but he's just not making his shots. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, we've seen that he's able to do it. I don't think being in the G League is necessarily going to improve that. I think he's just been very, very inconsistent. So I don't think it makes sense to send him down there. Of course, it's better than just DNPing the guy repeatedly, which is what had been happening uh, for for a little while. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Let him get playing time, you know, in, in a league that is better than the NCAA. So why was he not sent down to the G League at that point? Uh, ineptitude. Uh, what would be my love poetry yearning for Casey to come back? Uh, something I want to, like something I've seen. I mean, I've seen, you know, should we feel bad about having criticized Casey so much? No, is my opinion. He was just bad rather than all around terrible like Monty has been. Uh, but it's a sign of just how awful it is to have, uh, how, just how terrible Monty has been that I, I would happily, well, not happily, I would take Casey back because he's considerably less bad. He's He was not as bad of an on-court coach. He was a bad on-court coach, just not as bad. He was a lot better at the locker room compared to Monty, who seemed to lose them in early November. They've looked defeated and headless in a way that they never did under three seasons of losing with Casey. Less bad shouldn't be conflated with good. This organization just sucks at hiring coaches. And I can't really pine for Casey to return. He was pretty bad, too. He's just significantly less bad. But, you know, there's, there's where we are that uh, I would be happy to have Dwayne Casey back or content to have Dwayne Casey back for the remainder of the season. Uh, would I be confident that the Pistons would hire a good coach after that? Eh, I don't know. How do I expect the team to be placed slash be coached with Kate outs, heavy young player usage, or heavy retard, retread usage? I think I've been over this mostly. Uh, I was hoping that Sasser would be starting and Asar would get more run. I suspected, strongly suspected that it would be Killian and, and Livers just because it's Monty Williams and kind of in small part, this this actually isn't it. But you look at this organization, which just seems to have coaches and just decision makers in general who just do the wrong thing. I mean, it's it's just kind of become characteristic. So that, that wasn't most of it, but it's certainly there. Uh, now let's get to trades and free agents. If you're in charge heading to the trade deadline, is soft buying to make things easier for the kids or hard selling for assets? Well, consequentially making things harder your preferred path there was also another question about about viable trade targets so it depends on who's available for a low price uh, basically i mean the only moves that it really makes sense for this team to make at this stage are low cost moves around the margins which don't cost much in the way of assets this team doesn't have much in the way of assets to be trading but also it just doesn't make sense at this point for them to be expending a lot of them given that they are nowhere near like, oh, we can get this player and we're going to be significantly better going into the future. What you do want is just the trade for guys who aren't going to cost you very much and who can help you going into the future. Please, no more projects. I mean, this team has already had far too many projects. And sure, you, you want to bring some guys on who are going to you know punch above their weight in terms of what you have paid in order to acquire them. But please, no more projects. This team needs reliable role players. The issue is that if you have guys, role players who are genuinely solid role players who can shoot fairly well, who can play solid enough defense, then other teams will want them as well. Why would they be cheap? You go up to the deadline and there may be contenders who are willing to outbid you. I mean, what this team has to offer at this point is expiring contracts and second round picks. 
even though goodness knows it's already blown enough second round picks on, you know, whether the picks themselves or the opportunity, you know, the opportunity cost of second round picks, which it was with Wiseman on, on very, uh, very, very little return, but you know what? And, and second round picks aren't worthless, but oh, and then there were, there were the four that they, they sent out for Sadiq Bay, for example, and whatever. These are the assets that you have to work with. I mean, you, you have Isaiah Stewart. Sure. Are you really going to be able to trade him for value? And I think he still has value for the Pistons, just not as power forward as a locker room guy and a capable backup center. And then just a, you know, a tone setter on the court and, and a leader and, and so on and so forth. If you trade him, like, what are you going to get back? Do you really want to say, oh, well, we'll just take a couple of you know picks late in the first round and just continue to punt stuff down the road? I don't think that's worthwhile. Can you trade him for some guys who will make more sense for you, some for, for a role player or two who will make more sense for you going into the future? You know, if you have that option, then you go with it. But I digress. So in terms of selling, like soft buying, if you can do it, is the question. Who's available? What's the price going to be? We're not going to know until closer to the deadline. Does it make sense for the Pistons to try to outbid anybody? You know, what's the going price going to be? It's tough to say how viable soft buying is really going to be as an option. In terms of hard selling, I think there are a couple of considerations. Number one, I mean, it's primarily Boyan. And what are you going to get offered for him? And is it worth devolving from, you know, most likely from bad into like humiliatingly bad into just obscenely bad. Is, is that a viable option? You know, is that going to be bad for this team's young players? We've seen the value of Boyan just in, in terms of just providing scoring and providing spacing. Like that, that's what you're balancing out. I mean, granted, post-deadline is like a quarter of the season. But the reality is that the team has been incredibly bad so far and you want to make them even worse. Like the stretch has, I got to think, not really been good for the development of players. That's because it's so hard to be playing under these conditions and constantly losing. You want to be able to run your young players in a functional offense. You might think that that's like particularly important in this season when everything has gone wrong. It's hard to think of setting Caden Ivey back by by selling Boyan and, and or Alec Burks, whom I don't think would really fetch a very significant price. This front office stupidly put a ton of this team shooting into them, and it remains that way. It's just a lose-lose situation. I mean, there, there's no good option either way. You keep them, the team's probably just going to, to boy on in particular, probably just going to continue to be bad. But if you get rid of them, this team may go into, it may just reach new lows. Uh, but with this coach, what's the ceiling anyway? Like if you can, if you feel like you can make other moves around the margins and, and then keep boy on, for example, and, and think, okay, maybe this team can be respectable going into, going into the end of the season and then maybe like win six or seven of its last 20 games. I mean, that's that's a bet, of course, but in that situation, I mean, maybe worth passing up on, on whatever assets you can get exchanged for Boyan. It just all depends upon the price. Like if you can get a solid return for Boyan in, in terms of draft stock or like a, a good role player, then I, I think, honestly, you go ahead and do that at this point. If it's just going to be marginal, like some, some weight firsts, then I think you just look at what the situation is right now and think, okay, well... It's just not worthwhile. And, and okay, maybe we just guarantee his salary next season and trade him. You know, trade him for expiring contracts and some, some half-decent draft stock then when hopefully we've got more firepower on the roster. So just to summarize, soft buying, do it if do it if you can. And in hard selling, depends on the return. But you could do both, really. You could soft buy and, and still sell Boyan. And if you can soft buy a couple of decent players then it probably makes moving Boyan a lot more palatable. Alec Burks, like if he can, he's, he's actually, I think, come out of his slump. He's giving the Pistons the offensive production they were looking for. And honestly, the offensive production he needs to not be a major non-negative, given how bad his defense is. I, I don't think that the value you could get for him would be worth losing his shooting 
Like the, this, there's got to be a solid return to justify that. It's it, at this point with the Pistons as bad as they are in development, still being important, and Caden Ivy and, and Duran as well, just still needing that decent spacing. Uh, just selling as many players as you possibly can, you know, regardless of the re- just selling regardless of the return. I don't I don't think would be wise. Why aren't we giving Asar some run at point guard for a few possessions with the second team? What's the worst thing that can happen? So. I agree with the what's the worst that can happen. It's just that the possi- the possibility, it's just where Asar is in terms of can't shoot will be given the Westbrook treatment. Far worse than Westbrook, even today's Westbrook. And Westbrook is shooting like by far career low on drives. Like it's substantially worse even than today's Westbrook in terms of attacking the paint. I mean, you could try it. Like sure, experiment with it a bit. Just answer that question, why not? Is it likely to succeed? Probably not. But, you know, give give these young guys some run. You know, give them, try things. Why not? You know, let him do a little bit. It's just that you'd be real surprised if this actually ended up turning out well. But sure, give him a shot in the pick and roll. Why not? Uh, unfortunately, this coach really isn't one to innovate in any fashion whatsoever. Seems just very intent on following a rigid and very, very stupid plan. Again, is, is running a start at points likely to succeed? No, but I mean, your yeah, circumstances are what they are. And the tension should be given to development. But right now, again, it's, it's just a lose-lose situation because the coach is an idiot. Uh, if the Kings had taken Matherin or Sharp, would Ivy still have been the right pick? Uh, I think so. The Pistons did not have a Sabanis-Fox combination. I mean, that turned out to be better than anybody expected. Sabanis has just really thrived in his role, and Fox uh, last season really improved. I mean, really made a jump. It's just the Pistons didn't have anything like a number two option going forward on the roster in the first place. Keegan Murray has a very simple and straightforward role. He Almost all of his offense is assisted, shoots a ton of threes, attacks some closeouts, doesn't really do much on his own. And just plays off of, of Sabanis and Fox. The Pistons didn't really need a role player like that. I mean, a concern with Murray was always just that he, he just wasn't going to be able to do much for himself. They needed better than that. It was a very different situation. It's also worth noting that right now Keegan is, is being well coached, you know, on a solid team, of course. Whereas Ivy's on a pretty bad team. And he also had a promising rookie season, only to have the new head coach come in and decide to just completely bury him for no reason and continue to bury him for more than 20 games when his development was very important for the team and just the scoring was desperately needed. And a coach who, who as I've mentioned, just continues to refuse to trust him. Everything has gone wrong for the Pistons. <laughs> but no, I don't think Keegan Murray was going to be a viable option. Solid role player. And sure, this team needs more solid role players. But you also need high upside talent and who is going to be realistically your number two creator on this team. I mean, the team, and where were you going to get that guy if not in the draft? And Ivy still remains very promising. I would say I think Ivy remains very promising. And, and I think Keegan has a higher defensive ceiling than Ivy, maybe a higher defensive floor as well. But just in terms of offense, you need your super, you need your star creators. And I think Ivy still could very well be that. Though hopefully he'll be playing under a different coach soon, a coach who is actually willing to utilize him to all of his strengths and not just continue to marginalize him for no reason. And I'll just go on record. I'll say it again. I think that, that Jaden Ivey suddenly found himself in the starting lineup with a bigger role because Monty was told that he had to do it, most likely by Tom Gores. You know, assuming that Gores was being on the level, and who knows how much he was being on the level about in that incoherent press conference, assuming he was being on the level about uh, talking with, with Monty about rotations, you know, whether it was he or Troy Weaver, whatever. I don't think that abrupt change was just because Monty woke up one day and, and rolled out of bed and said, oh, well, I guess it's finally time for me to actually start properly using the guy whom I've deliberately marginalized to a, to a very significant degree for the entire season. And, okay, some guys to look for in the offseason. So I went over in the last episode, guys, whom I'm not really all that interested in. 
Tobias Harris because he just doesn't really fit this team's timeline. He's going to be heading into the age of athletic decline, and sure, it'll be helpful, but it's another below-average defender, and you know, just, just not the ideal situation. I think he'll end up staying in Philly anyway. Siakam, I just think, again, he's going to be big money. He's also heading to the age of athletic decline. He can't shoot. He's a guy who really needs to have the offense run around him, but just is not valuable enough to justify that. Not particularly interested. And if we just rule out the guys who are either highly injury-prone or going to cost quite a bit of money, I mean, you have guys like DeMar DeRozan, for example. Why would he come to Detroit on, on a reasonable contract when he wants to win a championship? You know, just go and take a cheap contract somewhere else with a contender. And it's just like, I hate to put it this way, but this front office, excuse me, this uh, this free agent class is very, very flawed. But, you know, let's look at some guys who could be of interest to the Pistons. Um, Malik Monk, I'm impressed. I, I thought it was, he was really just a flash in the pan with the with the Kings last year, but he has actually been very good and he could conceivably price, his, price himself out. Because the Kings don't project to be a cap space team and Monk only has early bird rights over there, the most that the Kings could offer him in the first season of his new contract would be about $17 million. You know, if, if you believe in Malik Monk, who's still pretty young, is averaging 15 points per game on high efficiency and, you know, upwards of five assists as well, I mean, that's potentially a very strong bench player. You know, a guy who can, who can come off the bench and, and give you some pretty darn good minutes and, again, has really developed as a playmaker as well. So he's a guy whom the Pistons could conceivably be interested in, especially with Alec Burks most likely being gone at this stage, I would say. You could have a look at Gary Trent Jr., assuming he's willing to play a bench role. You know, he's, he's a solid, he's a good three-point shooter. Um, not so great inside the arc, but also only 25 years old and might not really demand a huge salary. If you're not keeping Monte Morris, you could look at Tyus Jones, 28 years old, and arguably the best backup point guard in the league, though I think he's largely been starting this season. He's a guy who really helped to keep the Grizzlies afloat while John Morant was out last season. I mean, the last two seasons, the the Grizzlies were, I think, a little bit better without Ja than with him, and Tyus Jones was a big reason for that. Now that they don't have him, I mean, it's been real tough on them having having John Morant out. I mean, you can look at a guy like DeAnthony Melton, but but the, when you already have Marcus Sasser on the team, if you're planning on using him, wouldn't really make all that much sense. Uh, Corey Joseph, of course, a guy who can really elevate your team. I'm just kidding. I mean, Kojo is, uh, is definitely very, very washed. Um, would he still be better than Killian? Um, no, that's anybody's guess, but uh, that's uh, about as low of a baseline as you can you can compare yourself to. So uh, looking at forwards, I mean, you have Buddy Heald, a guy who's going into his 30s, strong shooter, bad defender. You really want to pay him the money that he's probably going to be looking for. Uh, I would prefer not to. And again, all of this is in the context of is the cap space just going to go poof if you don't use it. Uh, Kelly Olenek, who has actually been pretty good for Utah, 33 years old. Well, I wouldn't say pretty darn good this season. I mean, he's only averaging about eight points per game, but, you know, he has been efficient and he's been doing a lot of passing. Guys averaging four and a half assists per game. But yeah, 33 years old. Oh, and extremely efficient. So uh, he has, however, been playing most of his minutes at center, though he played a significant amount of power forward last year. Uh, I would say not necessarily a bad option as a backup uh, as a backup power forward. I think with Jalen Duran, you want to have more defensive heft behind him, or just more of a stabilizer, a backup center. And I don't think that's really Kelly Olynyk, not a guy who can really play defense at center. Not great a power forward either, but you know, decent. I think Olynyk could probably be had as it had at an affordable price. And beyond that, I mean, honestly, your best power forward probably you're going to be able to find in free agency is is Torian Prince. He's not particularly good by any means. But he can shoot threes reasonably well. He's not a bad defender. 
And again, when you're comparing to Stewart, this is key. He can move at a reasonable speed for his position. But you'd hope that they find some other way to get a decent power forward. They're how you're going to find a decent power forward if it's not in the draft, which isn't really super strong on, on win-now players. Though, again, I haven't really, I haven't really done a ton of research on the draft yet. So uh, I shouldn't say that because things, also just things could change by the time the season ends. Um, but if you're not getting in the draft, you know, Torian Prince may be the best you can hope for. I mean, you've got like Marcus Morris in free agency, but the guy is very washed up. You've got Robert Covington, the guy is very washed up. I mean, you conceivably have Royce O'Neal, but, you know, undersized, not really the strongest defender, pretty darn weak inside the arc. Uh, options are limited. And then if you're looking at centers, assuming that Wiseman is not going to be on the team next season and assuming that Bagley is not going to make a leap, which I think is pretty darn unlikely at this stage. I mean, if you can snare Nicholas, Nicholas, well, not Nicholas, sorry, Nick Claxton, I just said his first, whatever. This is getting a little bit later in the episode than I anticipated. If you can snag away Nick Claxton, you know, to play backup at a reasonable price, fantastic. You know, that that's really good. I mean, Nick Claxton is a strong finisher, a strong pick and roll guy, a strong defender, you know, really solid rim protector and, uh, and, and a solid switch defender. Brooklyn, I would imagine, would really, really want to keep him. And would you want to pay him a backup salary? Who knows? I mean, he'd be a good stabilizer to have behind Jalen Duran. He's only 25 also. Uh, if not him, then you could always look at Isaiah Hartenstein, who is just kind of a role player guy, but really has been decent for the Knicks. You, know, you throw $10, $12 million at him. You really just want to have a stabilizer behind Jalen Duran. And Hartenstein is certainly unremarkable, but he's a solid finisher. He's a solid rebounder, and he's a, he's a decent rim protector. So if you had to ask me the guy you could look at who is likely to be available likely to be fairly affordable and, you know, likely to, to come to Detroit, you know, if we're looking at backup centers, yeah, I would say Hartenstein's probably your best bet. So ultimately free agency just really isn't all that great. I know I've, I've harped on that enough. This team, I mean, ideally you are going to want to find quite a bit in the draft. If you find your power forward in the draft so far, not so much. Do you have assets you'd realistically be willing to part with to get a power forward? Probably not at this stage. You know, assets that will be sufficient to get you a genuine starting power forward and, and good enough to, uh, you know, an asset you'd be willing to part with. Again, probably not. So that's an open question. It is an open question how this team will significantly improve with free agency being fairly weak, with the team's available assets being fairly limited, including, you know, future first round picks, which you really don't want to trade unless there's a good reason. And with just limited talents uh, on the roster right now, it's a question. And just hopefully the team doesn't do anything stupid. You know, that the future should still, in my opinion, be very much be the focus. I think I'm still strongly of the opinion that building a contender should should remain the goal. Though uh, we reached the point where it's like I don't I don't blame anybody who just yearns back to the days when the Pistons were just fighting for the eighth seed, but still, you know, winning a, a decent amount of games each season. Uh, I don't blame you, you know, given how this season has gone, given that we're in season four of a rebuild and it's on pace to be the worst season in the history of the franchise and one of the worst seasons in the history of the NBA. Uh, I just don't agree. That's all. And finally, how does the Livers and Hayes duo stack next to Kobe and Shaq? Um, to be honest, I, I don't want to answer this because I don't want to badmouth Kobe Bryant by making this comparison. It just doesn't feel right to speak ill of the departed that way. Anyway, funny question. Uh, obviously, this wasn't, just in case this wasn't apparent to anybody who's listening, I'm being highly facetious. This question was asked because Kobe and Shaq are two of the best players ever, and Isaiah Livers and Gillian Hayes are two of the worst players in the league. All right, folks. So, uh, yeah, this actually happened to, turned out to be what I thought it would be, me saying that it was going to be a shorter episode and, and then uh, it being upwards of 50 minutes. In any case, hope you're all doing well. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you in next week's episode.